0: Welcome to the Just Right Show, where you'll explore the world of the written word. From books to blogs, sales copy to screenplays, emails to essays, and everything in between. You'll discover the tips, tricks, and tactics the most successful writers in the world use every day. And now, here's your host, Travis Cody.
1: Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Just Right Show. This is Travis Cody, and today joining me is Dan. Fox. Dan has been an executive and entrepreneur for the last 46 years. And up until 1997, he built and ran a full service ad agency for 12 years while serving as the VP of marketing, VP of sales, and a CEO. Over the last 23 years, since 1997, Dan has been an executive coach to over 450 CEOs and about 5,000 VPs in the high-tech field from all across America, Europe, and India. From 35-person startups to Fortune 500 companies, Dan has spent over 50,000 hours working face to face with people who, at their core, are just like you and me. Many of his clients have enjoyed mergers and acquisitions totaling billions of dollars, and several have even gone on to ring the bell at NASDAQ and went on to grow their stock price handsomely. Dan is a sought-after keynote speaker who has addressed hundreds of groups, some of which include the Biamp Corporation, Sandisk Corporation, Calvin Klein in Amsterdam. He gave a TED talk in England and high-tech executives in Mumbai, India. His speaking engagements focus on building quality relationships and igniting human connection and how these leverage massive business success. Dan's also the author of a best-selling book called Confessions from the Heart of an Executive Coach, which you can pick up on Amazon right now. The book is a study of leadership through the true stories of real CEOs and their struggles, failures, and victories in their pursuit of becoming great leaders. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Oh, thank you so much for having me, Travis.
1: Now, I know a lot of people will wonder, why am I bringing on a, someone who works with executives and how does that apply to our lives? But ultimately, when we're getting into leadership, I feel that it's those principles that uh, allow anyone to be successful in just life in general, not necessarily managing a, you know, a corporation of 1,000 people.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Success is a place that we come from. Yeah, Pretend you're pointing at your heart right now. Success is a place that we come from. It's not a place that we get to, like a destination out there. So it's wrapped up in who we really are and how we show up in the world as a human being, either in our relationships or friendships or, or work that enrolls people to want to follow us as a leader. So, yeah, they're, they're, they're collapsed together beautifully.
1: See, I've, I've already got the title for your second book, Success is the place you come from, not the place you go to oh there you go see we got to have all those lessons there because that like hey 20 20 years of my life i was fairly frustrated and miserable because you know like everyone i said when i get to that place then and you know working in in hollywood i had this it wasn't until after i left oddly how how why is it these insights always come to us after we leave but uh you always had this assumption that People have this level of success, and Hollywood is like such the worst place for success because it doesn't matter what height you get to. There's always something else to go. And so, a good example of this is: is I do, do stand up comedy, and I was an actor, and I also wrote screenplays. But in the acting world, when you get into Hollywood, like you just want to try to get a job, right? That's a, you just, and, and usually you'll start out as an extra. And then uh, you, as an extra, you're trying to get your Screen Actors Guild card because that allows you to get the bigger jobs. And, and then once you get that, you, you want to be – just get a day part. I just get a day player. I just want, let me get a commercial or two. And then you start getting commercials and you're making a hundred thousand a year, but you're like, man, but I really want to get some guest spots on TV. And so then you start getting guest spots and you're like, man, how come I can't get a co-star? If I I could be the co-star then, and then you get, you become a co-star of a show and eventually going, well, I'm just as good as the guy who's the lead. How come I can't be the lead? And then you become the lead, and you're like, but I want to be the, the guy of the number one show. Now, here, here's where it's it fascinating to me. You have, like, Third Rock from the – not, not Third Rock from the Sun. Um, oh, shoot. It's the number one show forever. At, uh, Sheldon. What's the show that has Sheldon on it? Why am I blanking out on this? Um, it's all right. Um, oh gosh and my listeners are like how could you work at Hollywood and not know the number one show so anyway you have the number one show and and at the peak these guys were making a million dollars an episode which means they were making a million dollars per week and I saw an interview and one of the guys was like yeah man I really just want to break into movies I, like I just can't get into movies and I'm like oh my gosh yeah, The guy's making a yeah. million dollars per week and he still hasn't felt like he's arrived. There's still somewhere else to like be Yeah, now here yeah. is here's the rub. The biggest criticism for the, some of the biggest people uh, actors in the planet and, and the guys that are getting, you know, $20 million a movie, uh, a lot of other actors will be like, I, I hate watching their films because they're just, they just play the same person in every movie. They're basically just playing a version of themselves. Right, and I thought about that, and I was like, "Isn't that interesting? You have all these people trying to be something that they're not, desperately because they want to be an actor. But the guys that are at the very tippity top of the pile that are getting twenty million a year, they're just playing the best version of themselves. Yeah,
0: yeah. That was was a bit of a
1: tangent to your answer, but I like I'm passionate about this fact of (laughs) like I I, know I spent twenty years in a thing where no matter what success you have, it it never feels like you're there, and so this idea of of coming from success versus going to success is, is, is great.
0: Yes. Yeah. There's a story about, uh, uh, they asked the rich man, the incredibly rich man. They said, how much money did it take before you found, you know, you were enough, you were happy or whatever. He said, Oh, that's an easy answer. The answer is just a little more. Uh, (laughs) when we, when we look for our happiness, fulfillment, satisfaction, passion, adventure in life from some external circumstance, from some, some external event or pay or whatever like that, We'll never get there. Happiness is an inside job, also. Yeah. You know, Abraham Lincoln, who who fought depression most of his life, came to the realization once and wrote, "A man is just about as happy as he makes up his mind to be." So we get to unwire ourselves from being attached to the outcome to be happy and just be happy right here, right now. And there's a lot to how to do that: being mindful in the present moment, having a grateful, the practice of gratefulness, some different things like that. Yeah.
1: So I'm working on uh, my next book and the title of the of it is called Perspective and the subtitle m- most likely will be how uh, mainstream and social media has turned opinion into the de facto de facto ruler over tr- truth and logic. Uh-huh. And, and there's been multiple studies now where uh, America, the most powerful, wealthiest nation on the planet, I always make the the uh, analogy where my friends go, "Well, what about this and what about that?" I'm like, "Look, I lived in LA and LA has a lot of homeless people and the homeless people have cell phones. <laughs> <laughs> That's how bad things are in this country is our homeless yeah. people have cell phones. But yeah, we the, make- where I'm going with that is the studies that have been done showing, you know, the, the general levels of happiness around the world. And it's always not always, but like 85 to 90% of the countries that rate the highest in happiness also happen to be the most poverty ridden, countries in the planet yep countries that don't even have clean running water access to clean running uh water and so you look at that going look at all the stuff that we have in america and i we're like at the very bottom in terms of anxiety and depression uh, which i just find is interesting like you said it's uh taking that moment to be grateful and i feel at least in our country to some degree people are not really grateful for much
0: (laughs) no no not 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 right now for sure so,
1: all right. So what I want to talk about, you, you were in business as an entrepreneur for 45 years before your first book came out. Yeah. So I want to talk about how long did you think about writing a book? When, when did you know it was time? And, and what was sort of the spark that finally made you go, okay, like enough's enough. I really got to get
0: this thing done. I probably had a desire to write a book, you know, when I was 25 or 30, but then the considerations that came into my unenlightened mind at the time was, you know, who's going to read this? I don't have enough experience. Who am I? Who do I think, you know, who do I think I am? Um, and I've, I've, I've held that, that. Someday I'll write a book. Someday I want to write a book. I, I really want to write a book and someday I will. When I feel like intellectually I've leveraged enough success to where it's uh, justified that I can write a book. And that was, uh, that was a lie, but that's what I did. And so I probably thought about, Writing the book for sure, like getting it out or whatever, for five years. Seriously, Um, I I wrote the first uh, manuscript draft and got done with it, and uh, I got it all on paper. Yeah, I got it all out, got it all on paper, and I began to look at, you know, well, I'd like to get an uh, editor. And I come from an old school called, you know, if you're really an author, then what you have is a publisher who who not only publishes the book, but pays you a royalty, signs a contract, does marketing for you, all that kind of stuff, and you need an agent in order to get a publisher, and in order to get an agent, they want to know whether you've published a book or not, because you know everybody wants to write a book, and so it was a the chicken or the egg, which one comes first, the agent or the publisher, kind of a deal. So I held off for a lot of years as a result of that. and I finally be, caught up to speed with the new the new era in writing, and my uh, people I talked to, and in fact, my last my great editor. Um, she said, you know what, even people who are really, really successful authors right now are self-publishing. Take that stigma that you have about self-publishing away, because do you want to earn $7 royalty on every book you sell, or do you want to have a publisher and earn 90 cents on every book you sell? And mm-hmm. oh, by the way, you realize the consolidation in the publishing industry has been rapid, and uh, therefore they're not going to market your book for you. They're yep. not going to put you on the road. They're not going to put you in a store for signing. They're not going to promote you. They don't have the money to do that anymore. So you might as well self-publish. And so I finally, okay, fine. Then I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll write it. But the first draft that I wrote, <clears throat> um, I, it's actually shelved. I, I've got it shelved. Um, I tried to edit it myself. And every day I woke up, I would be in a slightly different place and look at things slightly oh, differently. No. So I got in the re-editing loop for like a year. And I finally got so tired of it, and so I just wanted to throw up reading another page of my own writing that I, I just shelved it. Uh, and about a year, two years later, um, I got the idea. It was told to me, experts, that said, you cannot edit your own work. You have to have an editor with perspective to be able to, to edit your work for you. And so um, I got a first editor and a lovely person, but was more a syntax, punctuation, sentence structure kind of an editor, and what I really needed was a content editor, someone who would say, oh, looking at the landscape of the message, this has to be rewritten. This chapter needs to go completely. And we need to put a new chapter in over here. And oh, by the way, I want more stories and less philosophical academic detail here. <laughs> so the structure of it. And, and when, I, when I landed on um, my, my editor, Sandra Wendell, out of uh, Nebraska, she's excellent. Um, I, I took the, 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 I wrote it in about eight months and I edited it with her and was finished in about three months. Um, wow, fantastic! So, yeah, yeah.
1: So in Hollywood, uh, when, when I was a screenwriter, there's always the joke that a movie's really kind of done three times. So as a screenwriter, I have this vision in my mind and I write the screenplay and that's version one. And then it gets handed off to a director and the director has his own vision. And, and most screenwriters will tell you if they're on set that the movie that was filmed is not the movie that they wrote. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And then from that point, it is given to an editor and most directors will tell you that the editor came up with an entirely different version than what uh-huh. they had in mind when they were filming. And it's a lot of yep. times when you bring in an editor, yeah, it's, a, it's the same way and there's nothing wrong with that process because when you bring in creative people, it, I, I, to me, I think it brings a spark because the they're able to see things that you necessarily might not see. Um, yeah. and, and, and your journey is pretty typical. My first book I thought about writing, uh, I should say my first published book, uh, I thought, thought about it for almost 10 years before I actually sat down to write it. And then it took me about two years to actually, when I say two years, it was probably a month of like solid 40-hour work weeks writing, but it was two-hour writing spurts spread over two years. <laughs> right, yeah. right, exactly. Yeah. Yep. So yep. well, I'm glad that you're they convinced you to self-publish. Uh I have been both self-published and had a publishing deal. And uh yeah, they're really I, I spent the same amount of money marketing and did the same amount of work marketing both books. and, and yes, yeah. the difference was uh with my publisher I actually only got forty cents per book. And with my when I self publish, I'm I'm able to get, yeah, so over seven uh, more yeah. if you depending on the strategy that you want
0: to use. So yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it makes a huge difference. And I, I realize you can't. And the other thing that was interesting for me was, um, I've heard this from like 20 different people who I highly respect as authors or whatever. And they, they all say the same thing. And forgive me, forgive the language, but everybody writes a first shitty draft. And yep. so, yeah, so just don't, don't look at it and say, okay, I wrote the book, I'm done. It's good, because you know, it's not good. And an editor can help point out the structural changes that need to occur to make it into a great book. Um, I was in Orlando, Florida, probably a year, two years ago uh, at a convention, and and Todd Komanecki, who wrote the screenplay for Sully, Sully Sullenberger, the guy who landed the plane on the Hudson River. And I asked him, I said, we were talking about the editing process or whatever, and I told him my my travails about that. And he said, you have to have an editor. I said, how many times did you rewrite Sully, the screenplay? And he said, just over 30 times. (laughs) <laughs> it's a, the 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 writing of it getting it down on paper is what you have to do writers write period yep. and i th- i agree with you you know two or three four hours spurt and then you know you're done and then maybe you're dry for a couple of days you have to put it away set it down and then all of a sudden the inspiration comes and go back at it again but um the idea is the editing process is just very painful uh, because I might be personally attached to something and my editor is saying, this doesn't make sense. Let me point out why. It doesn't connect. It doesn't flow. It, is, it seems like it's out of place here with regard to that. And I get to go, okay, you know what? I'm gonna, I am I, I hired an editor. Uh, I bought a dog. And why have I decided to stand in the yard and bark myself? So, yeah, you're right. You're right. Okay,
1: I am cool. so going like, to use that for an email. Why stand in the, in the yard and bark yourself? Yeah, that's, that's great.
0: After you bought a guard dog.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, so Ernest Hemingway, uh, widely considered one of the greatest writing minds of all time. Like, he had that yeah. quote, first draft of anything is shit. Because someone was like, how yes. do you do all this stuff? And, yeah. and and incidentally, even he, when he wrote, he got up in early morning and he, he would start writing around 6 a.m. before anyone was up and he would work until uh, 10 or 12.
0: And yep. then that's it.
1: He was up. Yep. Uh, he was done. And then the rest of the time he was hunting or fishing or drinking, fighting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah.
0: My favorite uh-huh. book of Ernest Hemingway was uh, The Sun Also Rises hmm. uh, about the running of the bulls. That was yes. my favorite. He, he wrote so descriptively. You could actually see yourself there when you're reading. It's like page turning. Uh-huh. I love it.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, that yeah. is that is totally the case. So in, in, in screenwriting, they have a phrase called kill your darlings. And they, 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 the, the thing is, is after you wrote, write the first draft of anything, you go through the script and you find two or three parts of the story that you uh-huh. just absolutely love, uh-huh. but that you know intuitively don't fit. And then, like, you just have to, like, cut them. Yeah.
0: And that's, like, the yeah. most painful it's thing for screen. Like,
1: no, but it's such good dialogue. And, like, yeah. yes, but it doesn't move the story
0: forward. You have to get rid of it. Yeah. Uh, Writing is easy. It's the editing that's really difficult. And it's yeah. worth it. But it's just – it's painful
1: yeah yep. yeah well cool so well so the process for you then i love the fact that the the journey that you went on with that and so mm-hmm. this particular book was based off of your experience working with the amazing leaders that you have and so i realized that we have to come up with a new title because there's the scientifically validated principle where if you spend 10,000 hours at doing something, then, then you're a master and you've got yes. 50,000 hours of coaching leaders. So yeah. uh, you're like, you're the fifth grandmaster of mastery.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so uh, what was it about the stories that you felt was going to have the most impact with the messaging that you wanted to share?
0: Um, the thing that, that moved me the most was their real life stories with real CEOs facing real life problems. And I selected, you know, over all this time, I selected those big issues that leaders face that I knew were common that most leaders of any organization um, also face. And so I wanted to go through the story with them. And in some of the instances, they were not humble, but they were prideful and their ego was pretty strong. And so they wanted to do their own thing. And so it wound up failing. And I go through the players and what happened and why it failed. And there are lots of success stories, more success stories, believe it or not. Yeah, (laughs) that where they did listen and they did make powerful moves. And I go over what they were and how it turned out and, and the epiphanies that they got along the way. So it's the stories that are – make it not academic, philosophical, you know, dry reading. It's the stories of real-life examples that most people are facing today that, uh, and how they broke through and what the, what, the, what the journey looked like that makes it powerful, moving, and interesting. So. Well, yeah, and
1: then, you know, we can talk about theory all day long, but until you actually show how the theory was applied in a real-world scenario – you know, sometimes it makes it, cause for someone like me, you know, I run a small business. And so, you know, while I can put CEO on my business card, like I, I, you know, I know that I'm not like quote a player in terms of, oh, I have a billion dollar corporation with a thousand employees sort of thing. And so I know that for me, like I look at the book and go, yeah, but can I, is there, will I actually be able to relate to someone who has that much responsibility? And so, and, and your answer is yes, because Absolutely. it's the story. It's the human story because at the end of the day, we're all, you know, we're all human. And, that, yeah, and that's you, the
0: – If you run a large corporation and you've got $200,000 a day worth of operating expenses every time you open the door per day and you've got $15 million left in the bank, you know you're going to burn out of it in two or three months. And so the fear creeps up that you've got to raise another round of financing. And if you've had difficulties, how are you going to raise more money? It's the same exact – place of cash flow is the number one problem for small businesses. Somebody who has a small business with three employees and they've got $5,000 in the bank and they need to raise money or they need to come up with something in the next three months, it's still three months before you, you uh, business-wise die. Yeah. So it's the same exact fear. It doesn't matter the size.
1: Yeah, that was the biggest sort of wake-up call for me when I got into the marketing world was uh, you know, I ended up consulting and working with some of these guys that would be legitimately considered gurus, like the top of the top. They were the, right. the guys that the experts called and they have the big houses and the fancy cars and the really incredible lifestyles. But behind the scenes, I realized quickly that when you have a staff of 30 or 40 people, that it's really easy, even if you're making millions upon millions of dollars, it's really easy to be in a paycheck to paycheck scenario, just like somebody who's only making 60,000 a year. Absolutely. And, and that was Same a really exactly. big wake up call for me. Cause in my mind, again, my version of uh, success. When I get to success, you know, success looks like five million dollars a year. And when I get to that point, oh, that's amazing. And then I, I saw people who were way beyond that, and it was like they were still living paycheck to paycheck. Oh yeah. And, yeah. and in some ways, I felt like the pressure was more because for me, I'm like, well, if I'm if I'm making sixty thousand a year and I lose my job, that's fairly easy for me to go and replace. Right. The, the clients that I am working with that were they had a payroll of six hundred thousand a month. <laughs> Yeah. You lose, you lose your business. Like that's a little harder to read that That's a little harder to recoup.
0: And yeah, uh, you have the responsibility for the welfare of the, the 300 employees or the 2000 employees that you've got. So the impact your leadership has an impact on lots of lives, not just yours. Yeah.
1: So are in the book, are there two or three stories that are your favorites? And if so, why? Uh,
0: yeah, there's a lot. Um, one of them is uh, 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 a man I put in there who I've been coaching now for about two years. And the first time I met him, we sat down and I said, I want you to get in touch with your personal passion. What would you, why are you here? What do you want to, what do you want to accomplish? What would be worthwhile? What would give you goosebumps? What would make the hair in the back of your neck stand up? you, you have excitement, stir your soul, you know, give you butterflies. And he said, oh, I don't know. I, I really haven't thought about it. And 99.9% <laughs> of my clients have all said the same thing. I don't know. I really haven't thought about it because- Boy, there's a whole bunch here, but if I dare think about and dream about what I really would like to have and I fall in love with it, my passion will grow. When my passion grows, I become attached to having to accomplish it, and if I don't, then uh, I'm going to be hurt, disappointed, and wounded, and it's going to be painful, so let's just see how it turns out. Well, just see how it turns out isn't leadership. Leadership where there is no vision, the people perish. We need to provide a vision that you authentically are excited about in order to enroll people to want to follow you. So after a few minutes, he finally got to, well, I'd like to move to Connecticut and uh, I'd like to get a second home in Connecticut on the beach because that's where I grew up. And I said, oh, great. Tell me about the house. Let's, Let's paint a visual image around it as opposed to it just being a a factual statement, and he said, well, I, what do you mean?" I go, "Well, do you see yourself on the beach with your with your significant other looking back at the house? Is it yellow with white trim, or do you see yourself on the uh, with a glass of wine on the porch in the back looking at the sunrise, you know, over the Atlantic in the morning? You know, describe it to me." And he's like, "I don't know. I'm I'm kind of stuck." And I go, "Stuck?" He goes, "Yeah." I said, "Tell me where the stuck feeling is. Is it in your chest in your stomach, or where?" He goes, "It's in my throat." I just feel stuck, like I can't. And I said, okay, tell me about the lump in the throat. What's going on with that? And, and he thought for a minute and started to tear up. And he said, it's grandma. And I said, okay, great. Tell me about grandma. Tell me all about her. He said, well, I was six years old and she just loved me to death. And I just loved her like crazy. We were so close. We talked all the time on the phone, saw her as often as we could. One Sunday during my call, I gave her a, I'm a six-year-old, I told her a six-year-old joke. And she laughed and then she started to cough. And I said, well, okay. And he goes, and three days later at the funeral, I found out that she got off the phone from coughing, went and sat down on the couch and had a massive heart attack and died. And I said, oh, and now he's crying. And he got in touch with what, you know, that experience was like, and now he's bawling hands. His, his head is in his hands, he's, you know, head down and he's crying. And I just was with him. I was perfect, I was lovely. And I just sat there with him, put my hand on top of his hand and I said, this is perfect. Keep going, this is perfect. They'll keep going, not talking, keep going, experiencing what's going on. And he cried and then he finally got done. And I said, so how long, you you blame yourself for killing grandma, I started crying again. I said, I don't know about you, but I've got it wired that there's an appointment called death, it's appointed on demand wants to die. And, and, uh, and I don't get to set that appointment. I don't know when it's going to occur. It's set by, you know, by God, someone else. And, uh, so, uh, you had nothing to do with her passing that day. When are you going to forgive yourself for something you did not do? And he's listening. And I said, I want you to take and tell your brain by making a decision. And I want you to actually inside your head voice that I forgive myself for that because it's not my fault. I didn't do it. And he did. And I said, do you, do you have a God of your understanding? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah. I said, great. Well, then talk to him and ask him to heal that wound. Go ahead. Do it now, privately. And so we got done, and he wiped his tears away, and he started smiling. He goes, man, I, I've, every now and then, off and on, I've seen a counselor for 40 years, and no one's ever discovered that. How did you do that? And I said, I didn't. I'm not that good. I just ask questions and you tell me something and I probe there and I probe there and I probe there to where you get to the bottom of what's really going on. He said, it feels like a 10,000 pound weight off my shoulders. Wow. That's great. In three months, he was promoted to VP, you know? So um, it's, that's one of the stories about getting in touch with our old emotional baggage and wounds of the past, what we stuff, because we're all been betrayed. We've all been hurt. We've all been, you know, wounded. And to get in touch with that, and to uncover it and bring it out in the light and to clean it up uh, so it doesn't drive your show anymore um, is really, really beautiful to watch. It's really, really great. Most of us just stuff. You know, we don't know how to, when we're 10, 12, 14 years old, we don't have the coping skills to handle pain, disappointment, wounds. And so we, we just stuff it. We just stuff it. The, most people don't realize when you stuff an emotion like pain, you also automatically stuff all other emotions like passion, excitement, and adventure. So a lot of people are walking around like robots going through the day, just, you know, doing the, doing the next thing, but don't feel highs, don't feel lows. They're insulated. And the ego says, that's good. That's good. Yeah. You, you, you'll give up the, the highs because you don't have the lows now. Mm.
1: Wow. Well, I have to say that's when you think of someone who's working with executive coaches, that's usually not the the type of uh, coaching you're expecting. No, uh, not at
0: all. Not at all. I do I do emotional quotient coaching. I don't do intellectual or academic or you know analytical coaching because they already know everything they need to know to do their job. It's about who they are inside, um, their emotions, which drive their leadership and which prevents them from being happy and peaceful and contented and you know living a life worth living.
1: Well, I think you said something really important, which is, uh, you know, the, the importance of having a vision. Maxwell Maltz, you're probably familiar with him. He wrote about oh, Cyber psycho Cybercybernetics. I, I think he's kind of credited with being the guy who sort of really launched the whole sort of personal development industry.
0: And that's his whole
1: thing is like people don't have visions, and I I look at obviously in my own life and realized that like, oh, wow, like, yeah, there's, there's been like when I went to Hollywood, uh, not to keep bringing back that up, but it's such a big part of my life. But I went out there with hopes and dreams. And someone once asked me after I'd been in Hollywood for about five, six years, what, what it was like. And, and I said, it's like being a gladiator. You you wake up and you put on your armor and you take out your shield and you got your sword and put the helmet on and you go out into this big arena and you have no idea what on earth is going to come your way, but you know that everything that's headed your way is there to kill you. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. and, and, and then you go through the fight of your life. And at the end of the day, you come back into the thing, your shield is dented, your breastplate's hanging by a strap, your sword's probably bent, and you got to suture up your wounds. And, and then the next day you wake, wake back up and, and you go, go all through that again. And uh, I used to be friends with um, someone who was, at the time, an A-list actor. And and I shared that analogy with them one time. And they're like, yeah, Travis, that's pretty true. (laughs) And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is someone who's at the top. And even they're going, yeah, man, that's just the way it is. And the result of that is is you, you get knocked down or you get stabbed or you get beat up so many times. And eventually the emotional... Turmoil of having hope for something repeatedly and then have that hope not pay off like yeah it's, it's, I, I can see why it's easy for most people to say well but I'm not going to hope for anything we'll just keep doing what we're doing and we'll see how things turn out but you're yeah. saying we got to do the opposite we got we've got to actually envision what we want and so if, if we do that then how how do we apply that into our lives to help us move towards the things that we actually want?
0: Yeah, the, the thing, we get to stand guard at the door of our mind and, and watch what thoughts we allow ourselves to entertain and think and dwell upon. And so when I wake up in the morning, I put my shield on, I put my sword on, I put my helmet on, I put my shoes and I, I go out into battle or whatever like that. I want to make sure that I'm enjoying fighting the battle because I can say I'm meeting a new person today I haven't met him before it's a director or whatever and I'm going to um I'm going to contribute to them in some way I'm going to get in connection and relationship with them someday I'm going to enjoy the battle I'm going to enjoy meeting people and talking about what I'd love to have accomplished in my life and and see if I can somehow pour into them and get off of me because if I'm focused completely on me and what I've got, what I don't have, and what's not working out in the whole nine yards, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose all the energy and the passion that I need to continue to fight. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to enjoy the ride. I'm going to enjoy the day. I'm going to enjoy the adventure. I'm going to live in the present moment and say, you know what? I'm going to have Starbucks coffee, and then I'm going to meet with some, this other person. And I'm going pl- to be in that present moment. I'm going to take no thought for tomorrow, for tomorrow has sufficient cares for itself. I'm going to live today doing the thing that I say I want to do, and that is fight the battle to get a shot at being, you know, the A-list actor or whatever. And I'm going to take a moment, 10% of my time, and I'm going to picture what it's like to get that A-script, you know, role, lead role. I'm going to picture what it'll feel like. Oh, how am I going to respond to it? Who's going to come over to the house and celebrate the dinner that I'm going to have whenever I, I get that? because the thoughts that you think are always giving input to the subconscious mind the thoughts we think always culminate into an emotion if i watch fox news for 30 minutes and msnbc news for 30 minutes i'm going to hang up i'm going to i'm going to turn it off and because those are the thoughts i've been entertaining for the last hour i'm going to say man as a country we are so screwed but if i were to listen to some podcast or whatever that's uplifting and, and gen- energizing or whatever for an hour i'm going to feel uplifted So the train of thought goes like this. The thoughts that we think, the culmination of the thoughts we think always lead to an emotion, positive or negative. The emotions are what drive our actions, words, and behaviors. Our actions, words, and behaviors are what drive our outcome. So if you want to change your outcome, the only lever you've got is to stand guard at the door of your mind and be careful what you allow yourself to dwell upon and think.
1: Hmm. That's powerful. Yeah. I think it's interesting when you look at the sort of the the time. The, like, I, I love history, so I, I always you know look at for the cycles, and I I, I just found it really fascinating that in in, in the summer of '68 and summer '69 we had really crazy uh, oh, civil man. unrest in America. Yeah. and then what happened? We ended up sending men to the moon. and Then in 2020 we've got all the civil unrest going on, and and I mean literally the week after that it started happening. What happened? We sent. Yeah the first time in history, a private citizen has sent astronauts into space. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. what an interest 50 years later. And, and we're in the sort of the same cycle, but the difference yeah. is this, uh, what I thought was very interesting was the difference between 1969 and 19, you know, or not even 1969, but the sixties and and what's going on now, back then when there was civil arrest, there was a visionary leader. You had Martin Luther King, Saying, standing in front of a million people, I have a dream. I have a vision of the future. Yes, the past has sucked, but here's what I want the future to look like. And it's interesting because I've had the conversation with a lot of my friends of of all different denominations and races. And the thing that seems to be lacking right now is clear leadership. Yes, people are hurt. Yes, people are upset. Yes, people want change, but there's no vision. There's no one stepping forward going, what does that change look like? Where are we headed? Things yeah. need to change. So, what does that look like? And look at what one person did 50 years ago just by saying, This is what the future looks like to me. Do you want to yeah. come along? Let's go. And, yeah. Uh, it's you
0: know, enrolling. I, yeah. When someone, paints, when someone paints a vision for the future and they're passionate about it, it's contagious and it's enrolling. That's whether that's Gandhi or it's uh, Martin Luther King, or um, anyone else like that. JFK in, what, 62, said, I say we put a man on the moon and return him safely by the end of this decade. And he was assassinated within a year or two. But in September of 1969, we put a man on the moon and return him safely. Mm -hmm. And his vision was enough to carry the day, even through that period of time. Elon Musk put up the Falcon 5 rocket three times, and it blew up on the launch pad. And he admitted out loud because he was humble yet grounded. He admitted out loud, well, we've got to make the next one work because if the next one doesn't go up, I am bankrupt. So what is he focusing on? Is he focusing on the fear of the next one could fail too? Or is he focusing on, oh, no, of course we're going to nail this. Of course we're going to do it again. Yeah, it has to work this time. Of course we will. What is he focusing on, the positive of what he's going for? Or is he focusing on the the circumstances or the facts that show, well, three in a row has failed, maybe the next one will too? It's a choice. And the choice that he makes drives his – Um, his passion and his leadership and his grounding to continue moving forward in that, go out there, put your armor on and go out there and fight the good battle every single day. It should be, we're going to, the juice that we're going to get from our life is in the journey. It's not in the destination. So find a way to, to twist your mind, to enjoy the ride, even if it's painful. Um, And, and you, you, you will have ultimately won either way.
1: Hmm. So then Obviously, you've worked with some phenomenally powerful, successful leaders. Yeah. And I, I'm assuming in your industry, it's it's like many industries, that there's patterns. So are there three or five, two things or three things or five things that 80% of the most effective leaders all sort of have in common? And if so, what are those?
0: Oh, man. Yeah, that's 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 pretty easy. The first one is, prof- it's a paramount. It's the... Uh, the Everest of all of these principles is the most important one, and that is super heightened levels of personal passion. They have discovered a way to, to ignite, to create inside of them a personal passion for what they want to accomplish, which is larger than life. I've coached CEOs who once worked for, directly worked for Steve Jobs of Apple, Bill Gates of Microsoft. Larry Ellison of Oracle and uh, Michael Dell of Dell Computer. And I asked my clients when I meet with them, hey, look back on, you know, Steve Jobs, Larry Ellison, Michael Dell, you know, um, uh, Larry Ellison, these four guys, tell me what they were like. Because they're great leaders, you worked directly for them, what were they like? And specifically, what was their level of passion on a scale of one to 10? And without hesitation, every single one of those guys came back and answered, oh, an 11 or 12. And I said, I gave you a scale of 1 to 10, and you report 11 or 12. And they go, yeah, they bend the needle. We describe them as maniacs on a mission. They're zealots. They're sold out. They're all in, whatever it takes. And so I began to study for like you know, 10 years. What is the, the correlation of massive success to super heightened levels of personal passion? And it became pretty clear to me that a couple of things. One of them is that if your desire to succeed is strong enough, failure cannot overtake you. And I'm robbing that line from a book by Mandino called The Greatest Salesman in the World, which really doesn't have a lot to do with sales at all, but it's a great little book written years ago, still in print. Um, uh, the, so the, their heightened level of personal passion leverages them to a place to where a switch inside their decision-making mind flips and they go, I am now a commitment to, to accomplishing this. Like not hopefully want to wish to try. I'm all in, I'm a commitment to it. I'm gonna to climb to the top of the mountain and plant a flag or look for my body on the side of the hill, but I'm not coming back down having not accomplished my dream. That resolve and that commitment makes you look like you know John Wayne bigger than life and people wanna follow you. They get enrolled with the contagion of your passion and they become passionate through you and they're willing to cross five miles of hot coals to follow you anywhere to, to help you accomplish your dreams. That's the first thing. The second, then that's the biggest, like by far, 90, 90% of the successes dependent upon that one principle. The second principle that I find is really common and really, really important in, in tremendously great leaders that I've worked with is um, um, a love for their people. Like, I want to be in relationship with my people. This is not an individual who's a pawn on my chessboard I get to move around because that'll disempower them and they'll check out. No creativity will occur. No hard work will occur. No alignment will occur. I love my people. I love them. Like, I'm not always going to do, you know, often I'm not going to do what they want me to do, but I'm going to inquire, how are you doing? How can I show up as a leader to be a better leader for you? Not – you have to match me because I'm the leader. I get to match you because I'm responsible for your success. The, the, they truly love the individuals that they work with um, beyond business, and people get it right away. The, and the third thing that I find is really, really important is humility. Uh, as Socrates said, the more I know, the more I know. I know nothing. For them to be humble enough to say, I'm, I'm losing, I've been here six years. I'm losing perspective. I've become narrowly focused in my belief system, and I need to become open to seeing things in a new light, seeing things differently. I need to be humble, not prideful. And that humility is really, really critical uh, in not only building relationships, but also being open to taking a left turn when you don't see it coming and and switch the direction or the strategy to where you actually can win. So those are the the top of mind three most important principles that I've found present in Massively Successful Leaders.
1: Well, those those are pretty powerful. And so, what? So, on the reverse of that, what are the two or three things that you've noticed that will be roadblocks for? Uh, I'm assuming, like you were saying, all leaders kind of share same things. So, is there something that 80 or 90 percent of the leaders you work with that, that that is a blind spot or is something that seems to be a cha- challenge for most of them? So, you mentioned one earlier, which is the. Uh, the, the the vision for what makes them passionate is there anything right else?
0: right um so is the question what is what is common that stands in the way of them succeeding yes yeah, or, yeah.
1: okay yeah how do they how you know do what they I, what are some common ways that they get in their own their own own
0: way of success uh pride they finally they finally achieve the role of being a ceo they went out and they've raised venture capital of 35 million dollars they can build out their team they become somewhat full of themselves. And so they start drinking their own Kool-Aid. They start buying the fact that they're the leader and everyone's going to do it my way. Hell or high water, we're going to do it my way. And I know I'm right. And they've forgotten that they had a choice to choose between winning as a company or being right about what they deeply believe. And they've chosen to, I'm right about, I'm right about my opinion. And, and regardless what data or facts you point in my direction or whatever, we're still going to do it my way. It's going to become a test of wills between me and you. And I'm the CEO, and so we're going to do it my way. So pride is probably the number one thing that crops up to people who achieve initial success um, and stands in the way of them enrolling a team. Winning in a company is a team effort. It's not an individual accomplishment, uh, just like any other you know, sporting activity like football or soccer or whatever. It's a team event. Um, and so we need to enroll everybody on the team to make that happen. The other, th- the, the, the big one, of course, is the fact that they have, uh, accomplished, uh, you know, raising money and building a company out and, um, they're, because of their fear of now I've got something big to lose and now it's public, if I go under, it's a public embarrassment on me, my fear tends to get larger. And when my fear gets larger, I tend to play safer. I don't play bold, I don't play creative, I play safe. The idea that they get is subconsciously, all this is subconscious is just don't blow it, just don't mess it up. And so they go through the day without passion, without a vision, and they just wait to see how things are going to turn out. And They, they look to their teams to, to be inspired without them to, hey, I'm the CEO. You guys build this company out. I just lead you to do that. And it doesn't work that way. Uh, so many of them do not have in any, in any way a clear and distinct vision of what they want to accomplish. They, they say, well, I just want to be really successful, of course. Someday, you know, maybe do an IPO. Well, if if we don't have a, a target on the wall or a goal on the wall um, that, we're, that we're shooting for, it's, it's not fun to play. How, how fun, Travis, would it be for you and I to go to a bar which opened up just for us tonight? And we throw darts and you discover after the first 10 minutes that this place doesn't have a dart board. It's just a blank wall. And we're throwing darts. Well, it doesn't take about five minutes for you to say, this isn't very fun. When I hang a dart board <laughs> on the wall, it all of a sudden becomes fun because now we're shooting for something. So you've got to have a vision of what you'd like to accomplish and, and please don't make it realistic. Don't make it reasonable. Um, Elon Musk, a, a beautiful example said, you know, I say one day we're going to go out to NASA, we're going to steal the six, um, $6 billion contract from NASA to supply the International Space Station. And oh, by the way, we're not a bill manufacturer, but we're going to break in and we're going to take that contract from NASA. You know, that's, a, that's not a very realistic goal. And yet he did it. Um, it wasn't a realistic goal for Martin Luther King to say, I have a dream one day my children will be judged by the content of their character, not by the color of their skin. I have a dream. And he's just a pastor. He's not a senator, a congressman, a judge. A city councilman or nothing he's just a pastor of a church but he's coming from love and he's articulating his vision and he enrolled the nation to finally bring civil rights about to the extent that it did federal legislation called reconstruction in 1865 or 68 couldn't accomplish that but here's a pastor articulating a passionate vision that he's got then enroll people to actually create change so you have to be full of passion with a clear vision of what you want to accomplish in order to enroll people to be bigger than life and bold and creative and actually um, help make that happen. Mm. So
1: if someone's trying to go about this on their own and they realize I think uh, that – they've fallen in this trap of like, let me just get through my day and we'll see things have gone and maybe they answer the question, what's your vision or what make you passionate about? And they say, I don't know, I haven't given it much thought.
0: Where would you recommend someone starts if they're in that space? Um, It's difficult to remember the words confessions from the heart of an executive coach. I would recommend that they go to Amazon and in the search box, type in Dan Fox, F-O-X-X. And the top item that's going to come up is my book. And in there, it goes through exactly how to go about seeing realizing honestly admitting that seeing what stands in the way and how to rekindle ignite and rekindle your own personal passion on your own forever without me um and it's not about the money it's not about the book sales it's about i it's really articulated very clearly to the masses that this is exactly how to get back that that vision and that passion for yourself to where it's actually authentic for you and i go through the step-by-step process of what to do and how to do it to have a life that's worth living um, if you're really crazy and you really want to you know, look at relationships and connection or whatever, you can go to YouTube and type in the same thing, Dan Fox, F-O-X-X, and you can see the 18-minute TED Talk that I gave in Chelmsford, England, which goes over the keys to human uh, relationships, the keys to human connection. It's all about relationship. It's all about relationship, whether it's a customer, a significant other, a prospect. A team member, a direct report, your boss. It's all about relationships. If we get really good at that, everything starts turning our way. That's amazing.
1: All right. And so, if they also want to, now you have, do you have a blog on your website or is just getting the book or checking out YouTube the best? So, I think it's Unlock Your Leadership. Is that your
0: website? Yeah, that's it. www.unlockyourleadership.com. All right. Yeah.
1: Well, Dan, this has been fantastic. Oh. I've gotten, a, I, I think, a page and a half of notes here from things I got to go start, <laughs> start implementing. So thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you so much it, for
0: inviting me. It's been an honor to, to get a chance to be on your show. Hey,
1: it's Travis Cody. Thanks for listening to The Just Right Show. And I want to make sure you're plugged into everything we've got going on. Go to TravisCody.com forward slash show and join the email list so you can get notified when new episodes come out. Plus, you can find links to the transcripts of every episode we've done in the past. You can also grab a free copy of my best-selling books that share even more details on how you can uplevel your own writing skills. Finally, if you enjoyed the show, I'd consider it a personal favor if you'll leave me a review on iTunes and Spotify. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode.